this online. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. We want to be a living sacrifice. And so now, Lord, I'm praying that you will make us strong in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not be strong in ourselves, but that we would know that when we are weak, we are strong in you as we lean on you. So bless us now as we journey into the word. Thank you for the ministry of music that we've just been blessed by, the opportunity to give with our offerings. And now, Lord, may we give our lives as we open the word. May your impress and teaching be upon us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, the diary of a wimpy kid. I reference to this. Uh, you're probably not familiar with the fact that uh, it has about 16 iterations. Now, this morning I've entitled my message, Strong in the Lord, Lions and the Lionhearted. And what I'd like to say is that probably a generation or two ago, um, The Diary of a Wimpy Kid probably wouldn't have been a runaway bestseller. Uh, they're making movies out of it, started out as a journal. And hey, I get it, middle school is hard. Being 13 is not easy. Um, so I do get that part of it. But the idea that there could be 16 versions of it, 300 million copies, sixth best-selling book series of all time, that's just maybe a little bit over the top, but maybe it reflects where we've come as a society. I would say to you, if your uh, child is in the developmental years, be sure to teach them how to work. If you know somebody that does agriculture or construction or something, I'm talking for both genders, where they can develop a slightly different mentality about themselves, that would be good. In uh, February 16, 1844, there was a missionary in Africa who had a specific challenge. Uh, there was a lion that was eating the sheep, and uh, he had one of the few guns in the village, and he was summoned to form a circle, surround these lions, and uh, exterminate them. Uh, I know that in modern-day uh, parlance, that doesn't sound very good, but 150, 160 years ago, it was the difference between life and death. Uh, the lions eat the sheep. It means you don't get the wool and you don't eat the sheep. And as this missionary approached a rock upon which one of the lions was uh, laying, there was a skirmish which didn't yield any success. And then the lion positioned itself differently on the rock with a bush in front of it. And uh, the missionary pulled the trigger two times and fired his shots. It appeared that he did hit the lion. The problem was it was not a immediately mortal wound. The tail of the lion went up straight. Uh, the lion was intent on revenge. What the missionary didn't know as he was reloading his two-shot rifle is that he was the target of that revenge. As the lion pounced upon him and grabbed him by the upper arm, he shook him like a cat shakes a mouse. And in the midst of it all, David Livingston describes kind of a sense of being halfway in and halfway out of an experience with anesthesia. Chloroform is the word he used for his diary back then. Um, he didn't have any real sense of pain. He didn't particularly fear what was going on. He could hear the, the growl of the lion. Now, off to the side was another man with a um, flint and steel type uh, gun. He fired both shots and missed. Fortunately, there was a African national who had a spear and decided that he was gonna finish the lion off the old-fashioned way. And fortunate for Livingstone, 
uh, the two shots he fired actually did do the lion in before the lion made an end of him. Now, you and I have never stared into the face, never felt the hot breath of a lion on our cheek as it was getting ready to tear us limb from limb. But the Bible tells us there is a lion that's going about seeking for someone to devour. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Peter. I want to look at what we just read because there's some admonition that's easy to skip over. If we could go to the book of Peter and familiarize ourselves with what we're supposed to be doing, 1 Peter chapter 5, we are reminded often that there's an enemy of our soul that's going about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What we forget is the admonition of the apostle and how to relate to him. 1 Peter chapter 5, let's start with verse 6. It says, therefore, humble yourselves in the, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him or anxiety because he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Now, if you look at the scriptures, you see that the society we're in is running exactly the wrong way. We have a mental health crisis going on. No wonder. Uh, we've abandoned the idea of any absolute being who proclaims absolute truth. We are told that we are to humble ourselves, which means... We believe that there is a creator God who actually has the right to speak truth to our personal lives. The absence of doing that allows us to carry all the burdens and end up in the hopeless despair or the denial that there is any judgment coming or anything worse waiting for us. Now, this invitation to cast all our care on Jesus is a beautiful thing. But a world that's not doing that can't be sober and can't be vigilant because they don't believe there's an enemy and they're too easily and readily being extracted, uh, distracted or laughing themselves to death or dosing themselves to death. But we are warned that there is a great controversy going on. Now, what I want you to see is verse 9. It says, though he's going around seeking someone to devour, the next few words say, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, the devil has a three-pronged plan for winning over you. You need to know it for the sake of your kids, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your church members. Here's the three-pronged plan. The devil works on these three bases. First, he flatters you. If you're young, he's flattering you with a big salary, very little sacrifice, much pleasure, and the concept of a future hope on planet Earth with the, a dream. We used to call it the American dream. It's not turning out to be such a dream anymore, full of anxiety and doubt and uncertainty. So he flatters you first, just like he did with Eve in the garden. If the flattering doesn't work and you start to drift away from his grip, he bribes you. He attempts to draw you back in with some future prospect of something easier and better. Listen to me, friends, because we haven't come to the final stage yet. The prophetic voice says that he flatters, he bribes, and then he terrifies. Okay? 
So as long as you understand how he works, you can be prepared for what you're going to face. Now, American society is not in the terrifying mode yet, but it is coming. And when it comes, masses are going to bow down, fall over, get with the program, and go along to get along. Spirit of Prophecy tells us he has a thousand masked batteries. That's not like the Energizer Bunny. That's like the howitzer that's used to deliver the crushing blow. And so there is a moment coming in the future of this country which will have a philosophical and legal U-turn in which there's going to be the kind of persecution and pressure that comes upon us. Now, I didn't set the dialogue up in this sermon to be such to discourage or dissuade anybody. You know, I really do not want to live a life where I feel like the, the Damocles sword or the specter of doom is hanging over me all the time. Woe is me, woe is me, the sky is falling. Let me find a rock to crawl under and go away. This isn't what God has in mind for his people. Thus the sermon title, Strong in the Lord, Lions and the Lionhearted. It was Richard the Lionhearted, very respected amongst his peers at the turn or just past the turn of the first millennium who said, I have the strength of 10 men because my heart is pure. There's something about being true to your created purpose and a sense of your life's calling that when in held in sincerity and humility gives you strength. And without that strength, the Bible warning in Romans chapter 12 will come upon us. We will be squeezed into the mold of this world. People don't want to take risk anymore. They don't have an internal sense of confidence. They don't have an anchor of the soul. And consequently, we have a society where we have what's called this free-floating anxiety. And governments and people are taking advantage of it. I can't do anything about that. Neither can you, at least not very much. But what I can do is I can teach you how to be strong in the Lord. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We talk about the helmet of salvation, Ephesians chapter 6. We talk about our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. We talk about the belt of truth. We talk about the shield of faith. We talk about the sword of the word of God. We talk about all of these things, but they do very, very little good if inside the armor is a wimpy Christian. Ephesians chapter 6, let's not miss the very first admonition, which is a directive. It's his final directive. He says in verse 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I think some people have a wrong idea of a false humility, which makes them perpetually weak and anxious. The Bible says, for he's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. This is the strength we need to be salt and light in the society we're in. It's the strength we need for good marriages, strong parenting, strong churches, strong institutions, the loops of feedback that must be in every healthy environment and situation. Be strong in the Lord. This was God's design. Now, we don't always feel strong. I don't either. But this morning, I hope when we're all said and done, we will have committed ourselves to a relationship with Christ, a proper understanding of what it takes, a network that will strengthen us, and confidence that in the end, Jesus will stand by our side and be our strength. Ten things this morning. How to be strong in the Lord and be lion-hearted in the midst of the lion's attack. 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The first thing to being strong is letting Jesus be Lord of all and making a journey of discipleship with him where he gets to direct your steps. If you hit the easy button and parachute out, if you choose the pleasure and relaxation or entertainment button and ignore or deny, if you allow yourself to be distracted by wealth and opportunity and education, you are missing what you will need for the battle when you will need to be strong, let alone have the armor on. So this morning at the beginning of this journey, I want you to understand something. Jesus is your creator. He is your redeemer. He's looking forward to be your rewarder and your restorer. And this morning, he's asking you again, can I be in charge of everything? If the answer is no, the rest of the sermon will be largely irrelevant for you. If the answer is yes, you need to know he, as your personal coach and trainer, not cheerleader, but encourager, will take you on a journey where you are never stretched out of shape beyond what will be good for the new shape that he intends you to have. So this morning, are we willing to let Jesus be completely in charge of our strength training process? The second thing that'll be important if you want strength is you're going to have to believe that this whole thing is going to pay off. In the book of Psalms, chapter 37, it says, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. In other words, if you really want to become strong in God, you're going to have to remember everything God's already done for you. And if you're not keeping track, woe be unto you. Now, my wife had an interesting experience this week. She's a juror in a federal case somewhere in the state of Michigan here. I know next to nothing about it because that's how it's supposed to be. But I do know what happened when she tried to get out of the parking garage the other day. Uh, she's in a strange place doing something she's not used to doing. She's got her little voucher for parking. As she tries to leave the garage, she tries it this way, she tries it that way, she tries this code, she tries that code. Nobody's, it's not working. So she actually gets out of her car, goes to the car behind her and says, could you potentially help me with this? The person suggests to do this or do that. She goes back to the car. She sits down. About that time, a uh, individual, a man, appears out of nowhere and assists her with a very pleasant demeanor, and then he's gone. Now, is it an angel or is it just a thoughtful individual God puts there? I don't know. But I do know this. When you're sitting at the toll booth and the cars are backing up behind you, now, I don't think anybody started to honk at her, but when the horns start going and the stress starts building and somebody shows up to help you, whether it was a guardian angel who takes on the garb of humanity and shows up or whether it was somebody God guided to be right there to get you out of the mix, that's a little faith building moment for you. And friends, they come in your life at all different times and places. If you're not keeping track, woe be unto you because your good God, whether you're acknowledging him or not, is sending his goodness in circumstantial and human form and maybe divine in intervention all the time. You're all sitting here this morning. You all felt good enough to get up. We could be over in Ukraine where they're trying to figure out how they're going to build wood stoves out of cement so they can survive without water and electricity. Obviously, they're going to have to figure something out. But what I want you to know is you have to believe it's going to pay off. You know, when you start lifting weights, you say to yourself, well, I'm going to lose a little bit of this flab under my arm here, and I'm going to feel a little bit 
like I'm a little more well-jointed and joined together and I'm not going to be constantly worrying about my health. You have to believe it's going to pay off. Either Jesus is looking out for you and as Jeremiah says, I've planned a good future for you, a hope or else you don't. If you don't believe in the goodness of God, why bother starting down the road? It'd be a very poor place for a legalistic person to go. But if you really believe there's a good God and you believe he wants you to be stronger and not afraid so that the people around you can live in the shadow of your confidence and get an idea of how they can have it too, go for it. The third thing you're going to need if you want to be strong in the Lord is right expectations. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. You don't want to start down a strength training program and have the wrong idea how it's going to work. I mean, for any of you that have ever did any uh, weight resistance, uh, you know that for a period of a few weeks, you just kind of move every time, hurt every time you move around. When it comes to right expectations, it allows you to have a sense that this too will pass and I need to expect there'll be a little bit of suffering in the mix. The book of Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 the only sermon we have recorded of Jesus, he comes down to the end and his last two blessings are kind of a calibration of what to expect. Blessed are those, verse 10, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. We're back to that hope. For your rewards in heaven and it's great, for in the same way persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I want to remind you, we're in the flatter and bribe stage. Life is good. You can get a promotion. You can make more money. You get a bigger house. You can have a nicer vacation. But Jesus didn't promise that we would only experience those things. As a matter of fact, while there are blessings to faithfulness with God, there is a certain blessing in some of the trauma that's going to come our way. Right expectations. If you're going to get strong, you're going to go through some things that are going to make you strong. Just like laying on that bench and trying to lift that weight. It's going to take a little bit of suffering on the journey and you're going to pay a price to go from where you are to where you want to be. But I want to tell you, if a year from now you could say, I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm going to go out and deal with it. I'm going to help this person deal with it. I'm not going to lay in bed and worry at night. You would be a blessed son or daughter of God. The fourth thing you need if you want to get strong is commitment. You're going to have to count the cost and you're going to have to make a promise. Now with the rich young ruler, Jesus asked of him the thing that was in the way. There might be something in the way right now between you and God. He's been talking to you. You've been kind of nicely ignoring him. But if you're willing to make a commitment, and let me say something to all the young listeners right now. You don't want to be with somebody who won't make a commitment to you the right way at the right time. I'm talking about marriage. There is no such thing as love without promises because the feelings go up the feelings go down, but the promise remains true. And whether the relationship is good in the moment or not so good, the statistics bear out, should we be surprised, that when we keep our commitments, we end up feeling better after a period of time and we're stronger and we're happier. If I say that I'm going to learn to bench press 200 pounds, which would be a big stretch for me, especially since I'm not really doing any of that kind of thing right now, and maybe I should apply this physically as well as spiritually, I would be in a position where I would, I would lay there 
And when I lifted that long steel bar off those two black holding uh, stakes, I would have to decide how many times I'm going to try to draw that down to my chest and push it back up. And I'll tell you what, um, if you're doing this, you know, you try to do it in repetition. So if it's about the right weight, it's a little more than you can do three, uh, three reps of 10. And the first time you might do 10. I got my 10 and then I get it back on the bars and I'm rusty. <sighs> then I go for number two. I might get to number eight or nine and it's like, oh, and I get it. By the time I get to the third rep, I might be at six thinking, I don't know if I'm going to roll this thing off my chest or what. Uh, confessions of a would-be bodybuilder. Uh, <laughs> there are moments when you say, why did I do this to myself? I had somebody text me between the services and they said, which will go along with the future point that I'm about to make. But he said, you know, when you're weightlifting, you often have somebody that's lifting with you. And when you get to number eight or nine and it's too hard, they might give you just a little help. Listen, friends, you don't stop when your muscles hurt. You don't quit partway through the exercise. On Sunday, when you wake up, when you'd like to lay in bed, you say, I made a commitment. I'm going to go do this. It works the same way with Jesus. When he prompts you and he says, I want some spiritual bodybuilding today. I want you at the prayer meeting. I want you at the Vespers. I want you at Sabbath school. I want you at church. I want you in your own personal devotional life. When he says this is what has to happen and we are not committed to his lordship, we will stay weak in perpetuity. The fifth thing that you need if you're going to become strong in the Lord is you need proper nutrition. The Bible says, wait on the Lord and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, and have good courage. We sing about it, don't we? They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. If you don't know how to pray, you're getting weaker all the time, even though you think you may be stronger. And when you come up against an enemy that's too big for you, get down on your knees and say, Lord, deliver me. This is what Psalm 35 is about. Read it. Fight against those who fight against me. Contend with those. Take out the shield and the buckler. Pull out the spear and the battle axe and say to my foes, no, say to me, I am your salvation. Nothing makes you stronger than proper engagement with the source of strength. Reading the word, hiding it in your heart, and prayer. The sixth thing you need if you want to be stronger in the Lord is you need to be zealous for good works. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Titus. You have to exercise. As we exercise for any major physical strain or future stress, book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. Titus is big on this. Paul, actually Paul writing to Titus, when we come to the story of Hebrews, it's there. When we go throughout the New Testament, it's there. Titus chapter 2, looking at verse 14. It says, And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good deeds. Now, if that's the only place it said it, that might be worth noting. But go on to verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Go down to verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. I like how another version says that they should be careful to maintain good works. 
Now, it used to be we had a strong um, boys club in our society called the Boy Scouts. It's not nearly so strong anymore. The immorality of our age has created a number of challenges to it. But you know, they used to promise that they would be looking to do a good deed every day. Our own pathfinders promise that they will go on God's errands. They will be a servant of God and a friend to man. I'd like to know in our culture, in your life, in your family life, what are you doing to teach your kids to do good deeds? Or are you teaching them what society's teaching them? And that is, take advantage of your smartness, your good education, your nice family pedigree. Go out and rake in those buku dollars. And who cares about the church and who cares about the poor? Who cares? I don't have to care. Good deeds... According to Paul, we're supposed to meet together regularly to encourage each other on to good deeds. Recently, our pathfinders uh, collected food here at the church and our deacons took uh, food baskets out. One of our members was out circulating the community and they came to an individual who wrote a check for $500 for that. You know, if we wouldn't have been doing one good deed, that person would not have had a reason to do their good deed. And by the way, that person suggested that they had never done anything like that before. You see, without spiritually exercising on behalf of your family, your church, and a lost world, you become weak. Because every time you do something in the name of Christ for somebody else, there's an intrinsic reward, internal. And there is a strengthening of your person in the likeness of God. Good works. The church used to be the one that ran the mission schools around the world. Now we have businesses that have taken it up. Our church needs to get stronger in its missionary efforts, in its acts of beneficence, in its acts of generosity. Not less, as we see Jesus getting closer to appearing in the clouds, we're to be more committed to the works which will produce fruit for the harvest that's coming than anything else. The seventh thing you need if you want to be strong is you've got to get rest. That rest is physical when it's physical training and it's spiritual rest. Spirit of prophecy is clear. Even ministers, Bible workers, and teachers shouldn't work all the time. It's not good for them, and neither should you. It's important for you to stop. You should have in your day a little time to be with God. You should have in your week 24 hours that are peculiarly blessed for you to be renewed. Jesus told his disciples, come apart and rest a while. He said, if you're heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Now listen, let's be real here. There are some people who think that Jesus holds you in the fire all the time, that Jesus puts you through the rigors all the time. Some of you have lifted weights. And you know that if you're going to actually lift weights to build body mass, you lift no more often than every other day. Because your muscle breaks down, and in the two days that follow, it builds itself back up. And it comes back a little more ready for the next time you do that to it. It didn't like you saying, 200 pounds, why did we do this? But it comes back a little more ready. The truth of the matter is, if you had a coach and said, all right, go out there and do those 200 pounds or 300 pounds, some of you can do that. And you do it. It's Sunday morning, 300 pounds. By the time you get to the end, you're huffing and puffing and you're barely getting it back onto the rack. And then the coach came back and he said, we're going to go do that again. It's, it's just after lunch on Sunday. And you'd try, but you couldn't because your muscles were broken down. You see, some people think God is the relentless purifier. And they forget that being in the presence of God is the fullness of joy and he knows how you're made physically and spiritually. 
And he doesn't do that to you. You're not held in the fire all the time. And you shouldn't hold yourself there thinking somehow you're doing some kind of good work. Jesus is the most perfectly balanced entity person in the universe. He gave us a Sabbath day and said, listen, in your insecurity and your conquest, you're going to forget you need to stop and rest. And I want your animals to rest and your servants to rest and the strangers in your, under your roof to rest. If you want to be strong, you've got to lay off the burdens for a little while and just be in the presence of Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. Number eight, if you want to be strong, you've got to have fellowship. You've got to be in communion. What's the Bible say? Two are better than one. It says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, I think what the Christian church has forgotten, but the devil hasn't, is the power of empathy. You know what? If you like somebody, you interpret their actions completely different than if you don't know them. Uh, in his book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek talks about what he calls abstraction. You know, if you're the owner or the CEO of a company with 10,000 employees, it's no big deal for you to write layoffs for 1,000 of them because you don't know any of them. But if you're the, work, if you're the owner of, of a 10-person company and you're going to lay somebody off and you know his name is John and his wife's name is Mary and they've got three kids, Billy, Susie, and Tommy, you don't write that layoff slip quite the same way. The Bible tells us that we should not think evil, that we should look through the eyes of love. The truth of the matter is, is that when it comes to the dynamics of fellowship, not only do sometimes people nerve you, they encourage, they put courage in you. Sometimes they hold you accountable, but when they love you, they believe in your future growth and they believe in your current intent and they interpret everything the other way. In his book, Simon Sinek starts out with a story of Johnny Bravo. Johnny Bravo was the pilot in the A-10 Warthog. Not a very flashy jet plane, armored plane, almost no comforts for the pilot. This story took place in 2002, one year or less than a year after 9-11. And uh, Johnny Bravo, as we'll call him, was flying with his wingman over a valley on a very dark night in Afghanistan. And Johnny Bravo had, had never actually been in any actual combat, but he had trained for it. He was prepared, and his role was exceptionally important. As a matter of fact, as he was flying there above that cloud-covered valley in the dark of night on that Afghanistan evening in August of 2002, he knew there were 22 special forces on the ground who had captured a high-profile enemy. He could not begin to know, although there was an intuitive sense in him that something was wrong on the ground. Now, in 2002, the avionics on these planes were not so good, and he was thinking to himself, I'm going to drop down beneath the clouds, and I'm going to do a weather check. Now, remember, he's flying this airplane with special goggles on, night vision goggles. And about the time he's thinking, I'm going to drop beneath the clouds into this valley, surrounded by the mountains. The only maps they had were Soviet maps. They weren't that great. He gets a call. It's three simple words, and those words put a chill into Johnny Bravo's heart. They were the call of distress. And 
as he, as he lowers his plane down through the clouds, his plane is thrashed by the turbulence as he's moving through the different wind currents in that cloud system. And when he breaks into the valley, he knows because he studied his maps how long he has. He's staring through night vision goggles, and he knows how long he has before he slams his plane in the other side of the mountain. What he sees horrifies him. There are all kinds of flashers coming from rocket launchers and machine guns from both sides of the mountain at those 22 men who are pinned down in the valley. And he decides, because I'm not recommending this is how you should go about doing this, but the way he had trained was, he had watched the video, train, uh, The Saving of Private Ryan, and he had thought about those Wiggins boats when they dropped down their big ramp, and he could hear the sound of the bullets and the pings as they bounced off the steel, and he could see the men falling and crying for help, and he trained himself, he mentally prepared himself so that the first time he went into battle, he would be prepared to make the sacrifice because at so many tens of thousands of feet above, you've got a nice cushion of security. And when that plane came out of the thrashing of the cloud cover, he could see all this rocket and uh, machine gun fire concentrated in one little spot from both sides. So Johnny Bravo in his armor-plated airplane, which is not particularly fast with two jet engines, A-10 Warthog, he comes down in and he decides if he's going to survive, he's got to pay attention to a lot of things. So he comes up with a system. He knows how many seconds he can go before he slams into a mount. So he starts counting one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And all the while, he's pulling on the triggers, firing at these places, and he gets to six, 1,000. And then all of a sudden, he pulls back on the yoke, banks to the right. The sound of those two jet engines roar through that Afghanistan valley. He goes up above the clouds, comes back around, and he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it again. There's only one problem. He's got plenty of gas, but now he's out of ammunition. But he's got a wingman. The wingman is not nearly as, in, as competent in flying the airplane and not nearly as willing to take as many risks. So this is what Johnny Bravo says. He says, I'll tell you what, you follow me and I'll fly right above you and I'll tell you what to do. So there's Johnny Bravo and his A-10 Warthog flying across this valley trying to save 22 men and a high value target at the center of this Afghanistan floor. And he's counting one 1,000, two 1,000. When he gets to about five 1,000, he's calling out to his friend and two Warthogs come climbing out. When that night is over, 22 American servicemen are still alive because of fellowship and commitment and encouragement from one pilot to another. The, uh, the church of Christ cannot exist in isolation. We must make an effort to become a family, to bond, to encourage, to strengthen. And in the process, we will receive accountability, a little bit of feedback. We'll have what's healthy and an ever-increasingly unhealthy situation. And by the way, friends, when it comes to fellowship, it's important that you don't let any parasites work in your life. What kind of parasites? Well, I once went to Cuba. I sat on a Soviet-made airplane. I actually got to go all the way up into the cockpit as we were flying from Cancun to Cuba. This was 20-some years ago. I could stand there and talk to the pilot if I could have spoken Russian or Spanish or whatever it was. And as we're flying, as we're flying over there, I get acquainted with a businessman, very wealthy man. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter how smart you are, you can have parasites. He had eaten a chicken burrito somewhere and he'd gotten a 26-foot tapeworm in his intestines. Now, for all you physiologists, there's only so many feet of small and large intestine. And so my guess is if it was 26 feet long, it had to kind of lay in there and kind of take up a little room. You know what? Spiritual people 
the devil wants to infest them with parasites too. Bitterness, unforgiveness, doubt, unloveliness. You know, you can read the Bible all you want. You can ignore the Bible all you want for good reason. But I want to tell you, if you think that the roaring lion only uses roars and fangs and fur, you don't think he uses the parasites that just suck the life out of you slowly. Stop and think again. You may think you're strong. The Bible says, take heed lest you fall. The truth of the matter is, is that when we're dealing with the enemy as slick and as smart and multifaceted as Lucifer, we're dealing with someone that's beyond our class and we need Jesus. Yes, I want to assure you, we are to come together all the more so. Listen, four kids, that's what I have. They're all young adults now. They sat through lots of prayer meetings. They went to lots of Vespers. They went to work bees. They went on mission trips. They sat through Sabbath school classes and adventure classes and Pathfinder classes. They went to chili cook-offs for different entities and all kinds of other socials. I'm here to tell you today, seeking first the kingdom of God on behalf of your children with your schedule will only render them more strength for the days in which they're living. Don't be so sure they need all that extra sleep. Don't be so sure you need all that extra margin. The truth of the matter is they need the fellowship of future generations. I used to get to the place with my oldest who liked to challenge me all the time. And I said, well, why don't you go talk to him? No, I won't go talk to him. He'll tell me exactly what you said. That's right. And you get to that place where they need to hear it from somebody else. The fact of the matter is this is to be a family with multi-generational benefit and encouragement and accountability. If you want to be strong, you cannot isolate yourself. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, verse 1, he who isolates himself rages against all sound wisdom. Part of that fellowship is number nine, accountability. You need that exercise partner. Who you know is going to say, how was your run today? Run? Mm, I didn't make it today. You know he's going to call you the next day. And so you say to yourself, I don't want to tell him I'm just sloughing off. So you actually put the sneakers on and you go for a walk or you go for a run. And by the way, friends, when you look at your strength, don't compare yourself to somebody else. Man, alive. When I was growing up, it was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. There was no way I was ever going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And there was no reason I should try. But when you're 18 and you see Mr. Universe, it's like, oh. You know, some of you come from backgrounds where insecurity was institutionalized. Some of you come from backgrounds so great that if you don't give your life away to something great, you're just going to launch yourself into a self-focused adulthood which will damn you and will damn others through the absence of your gift, your touch, your commitment. Some of you have temperaments that are very reserved. You're not supposed to be the person who gets to the front of the pack and calls cadence for everybody, but you are to be the silent person who won't give up their post, the sentry who is going to be true to the responsibility that was given you. You don't need to be like anybody else, but you should get stronger for who you are as Jesus, as your personal trainer, shows you how to be strong in the Lord. Fear is a terrible thing. Don't make yourself more afraid by making yourself think you need to look like or be like somebody else. The last item, if you want to be strong, is you need to believe there's a reward that all of it's worth it. You know, I've talked to you at different times about some of my physical endeavors. 
There's something about turning 40 that makes every person realize you're not going to be young forever. So what do you do? You say, well, I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> and you go out there and you start doing things. And there are some old people that I know that are the strongest people in the world. They can't help move their own refrigerator in or get their broken dryer out of the basement. But I want to tell you something. They're not facing the future with fear. They've gotten stronger most every day of their life. They've walked with God. They've known fellowship. They've gone through hardship. A lot of our older people have been through times of poverty, which wouldn't hurt any of us at some level to face at some moment in our lives. Being rich all the time and well-heeled is bad for society. It's bad for our kids. It's not good for you either. You know, if you want to get strong, you've got to sweat. You've got to make some sacrifices. You've got to go beyond the call of duty. But I'll tell you what. I've not met anybody who's made a commitment to lose weight or become more physically fit who six months into the program actually doing it is sorry they did it. The truth of the matter is all you got to do is learn your first five pounds and it's like, no, I'm not eating that dessert. No, I'm not going to sit around and take a second plate full tonight. You know how hard it was to lose these first five pounds? The truth of the matter is anybody that's run for any distance or lifted for any length of time, they get to the place where the good feeling they have, the reward of discipline, is better than all the momentary indulgences. But in spirituality, we're so used to having cheerleaders instead of coaches that we get sloppy and flabby. And we're still supposed to have our preachers make sure we feel good about it. Listen. There was a book written called Extreme Ownership. It was about how Navy SEALs are trained. You know, the funny thing was, they have, a, they have a, a part of their training off San Diego where the ocean currents are very cold. And they have these blow-up rafts, and they have these competitions. And I tell you, they just make their lives terrible, these coaches do. What they found was they could take the poorest performing team and if they changed the leader, they could turn it into the best performing team. That's the power of good leadership. You can reject the training people that God has put in your life, the coaches. If you're a coach, you can go to constant encouragement, which doesn't work. Yes, a coach does encouragement. There are times he puts his arm around his shoulder and says, you know what, that was terrible. You can do so much better. Now go out and get them. If you don't get the balance right, you destroy hope or you enshrine poor performance. Now, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. I'm not here suggesting you make yourself strong on your own. But I am telling you this, Jesus bought your salvation. Now he's given you the tools, according to the apostle, to work with it and to work out the gift. And if you want to ignore dynamics of accountability, of fellowship, a proper feeding on the Lord. If you want to deny, if you want to be dishonest, say, there's no parasites in my life. No, no bitterness, no resentment, no unforgiving, no evil thinking, no gossiping. If you want to deny, you can stay just the way you are. And I'm so proud of this church family. So this is not a, it's not a diatribe on our problems. It's a call to come up to higher ground. You know, just this last week, they voted... Well, I don't know if it got all the way done. I don't know if it made it to the president's desk, but they just, they just voted as a federal law that you can marry whoever you want. 
well, I got to marry whoever I wanted. She is the joy of my life. But now if you live in a state that doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, because of this law, it will have to. Listen, friends, we've coasted through a society that nominally held Christian values, and that day is gone. Flattered, bribed, the third phase is coming. But you don't have to be afraid. The woman of Proverbs 31, she's not afraid of bad news. We're not to fret. Years ago, there was an oppressive power that ran through the Far East, and everybody fled except a monk. He was sitting in his vestibule in the temple, and an officer came in, and the absence of him standing and bowing down and affirming was a little bit offensive, and the general said to him, he said, do you know I could run you through without batting an eye? And the monk, mind you, not a Christian, but someone that was pretty settled, said, do you know you're looking at somebody that can be run through without batting an eye? The sons of darkness are more shrewd than the sons of light. This morning I'm here to tell you, we're living in times that try men's souls. But you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is your shield. Jesus is your strength. He's your words. He's your buckler. He's promised to pull out the spear and the battle axe and say to your soul, Psalm 35, I am your salvation. How would you like to meet Jesus on a dark path with the battle axe and the spear in his hand? You see, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the angel of the covenant. He is the ultimate warrior of the universe who has suffered but will come back triumphant. And he is going to avenge the blood and the sufferings of his people. And I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, there's a roaring lion going about looking for somebody to devour. Don't deny that he's out there. But do this one thing. In the name of the Lord Jesus, resist him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.